Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investment, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. We need the whole banking system to be green if we're going to achieve our goals of solving climate change. We can't have this be niche-oriented. So the 5,000 credit unions and the 5,000-plus banks, they all need to be green. That means they all need to have an asset class called clean energy. They all should be providing you know, more affordable, better interest rates for an EV versus an internal combustion engine. They all should have solar, home geothermal, energy efficiency equipment. That should all be there as an asset class. The Clean Energy Credit Union, for example, as a relatively new institution, they've been around for over three years now. They have had zero defaults. And that's a real testament to the viability of this clean energy asset class. Hey, everyone. Today's episode is a deep dive into climate finance. I'm joined by Marilyn Waite, who is one of the world's leading thinkers, writers, and leaders working in several different ways to stimulate the kind and scale of investment needed to address climate change. She brings a deep commitment to climate justice and using finance to ensure the climate transition happens more equitably. And making investments in the US, Europe, and China, Marilyn brings a truly global lens. This is a really thoughtful conversation, reflecting on the role of philanthropy in climate finance, the banking sector's role in addressing climate change, the implication of Silicon Valley banks' collapse, the likely impact of disclosure rules, innovative finance, systemic change in finance, and much more. If you're interested in the big picture of climate finance, there's a lot here for you. Here we go. Hello, Marilyn. Welcome to Invested in Climate. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Are you in Paris this week? And how is the feeling of climate momentum there relative to elsewhere where you are traveling? So right now in Paris, I would say climate is a bit secondary these days. First priority is retirement reform, which of course is not unrelated, but not being discussed really together. So I would say massive public demonstrations around retirement reform. Climate is still there. It's still a part of the agenda, but it is less prominent these days. Thanks for being there. And I'm sure doing what you can to make sure that people are thinking about it. Let's learn just a bit about you and what drives you. Looking way back, your undergraduate degree was in civil and environmental engineering, just giving a sense that you've been committed to climate for a long time. How did all this start for you? When did you know you wanted to work on climate and what drove you to it? So when I was studying civil and environmental engineering, climate change was not a major component, if you can believe it or not. I did take a course on energy for a greenhouse constrained world. And that was my first introduction to climate change back when I was studying my first degree in engineering. But it really wasn't as prominent as it is today. 
And I think we lost a lot of time by not taking it more seriously earlier on. But it was a part of that learning experience. And I think from living in Madagascar for my first job and witnessing firsthand a lack of sustainable, affordable, reliable energy really motivated me to work on the energy challenges, that side of climate change. And then that evolved into broader climate work, which is really sector agnostic, looking at reducing emissions for all sectors in the real economy. Let's turn to today. I'm sure you get put on the spot all the time with what for many people is the simple question of what do you do? You are involved in driving climate progress in so many ways, it's probably a trickier question to answer. But let's try so that we can start with a high-level overview, and then we'll dig into specifics. So if you don't mind, tell us, what do you do? I have many hats, and my main hat is leading the Climate Finance Fund. And leading that means working across three major markets, China, the European Union, and the United States, mobilizing capital for climate solutions. So I'm a capital allocator. I allocate capital for both innovative finance and systemic changes in the financial system that would enable the system to move more towards climate-friendly financing and investing. And that is covered not only across these three economies, but also across three pools of capital, venture capital, asset management, primarily within that fixed income, illicit equity, and finally, bank lending and credit. And I would say we really look at the full supply chain of capital allocators. So you and I and our listeners today, as consumers, as retail investors, small and medium-sized enterprises, large non-financial corporations, and the banks and asset managers themselves. And I would say we're about 80% focused on the market directly and 20% focus on the market rules. And all of this has a lens, a justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion lens. Really, our high-level goal is to ensure that we have adequate capital to solve climate change. Fantastic. And my understanding that is that the Climate Finance Fund is backed by the Hewitt Foundation, and that in many ways you're leveraging philanthropic capital to accelerate and grow climate financing. Is that the case? And, and if so, why is philanthropic capital needed? That is correct. The fund is backed by the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and it's essentially the climate finance strategy of the Hewlett Foundation, which was started back in 2018 when I joined the Hewlett Foundation to lead the portfolio. Now, the question you've just asked, why is philanthropic capital needed, has multiple layers. The question of philanthropic capital could be asked in general, not, not only for climate. There are books like Just Giving, uh, Winners Take All, Decolonizing Wealth, and so on, that really challenge the, the very idea of philanthropy and how it's practiced today. And there are strong arguments in favor of adequate taxation over having this amount of philanthropic capital available. Now, if we continue to have inadequate taxation and thus money that would have otherwise been used for the common good is now available in a much less accountable way, then the next question is, what do we do with it? And that's what I'm working with. I'm working with the what do we do with it part. This capital, which is not accountable, which is relatively flexible, can help in both illustrating, demonstrating to the market viability where the market perceives there to be risk or where there may actually be real risk and kind of 
showing how there's a pathway forward and taking, you know, taking more risk, um, taking what's called first loss in case a projection doesn't pan out and really um, calming nerves around uh, going into certain markets, whether the, the market is a certain location or the market is a certain new type of technology and so on. And the other thing that you know we can do with this kind of capital is systemic change in supporting the ecosystems, so the think tanks, the research, the advocates, and so on, that will enable the regulations to shift and working with all parts of society to ensure that the regulations are working for people and planet. Marilyn, I know that through your work, you're really taking a systems view of what's needed in terms of climate financing overall and the role philanthropic capital can play. And so I'd love to just get a sense of the scale of how much climate financing really is needed, the role philanthropic capital can play, and where you think the rest of the financing we need will come from. So when I first started this particular line of work in 2018, we were talking about a trillion or so, a trillion to three trillion US dollars each year between now and 2050. As time has passed, we're now looking at numbers like three to four trillion. So the longer we wait, the more expensive it is, hands down. We also have now a better understanding of the full scale of decarbonization needed. So I think before we were overly focused only on the energy systems. And now we understand that a third of emissions come from the food and agriculture sector. And we understand how important transportation is and all these other real economy sectors. So that has evolved. And so let's say we need on average 3 trillion US dollars each year between now and 2050 to solve climate change in terms of climate investments. Now that money comes from both public and private resources And based on the latest data we have from CPI, the Climate Policy Initiative that tracks these things, that public versus private is is mostly evenly split. Now, it depends on the economy, of course, but in general, globally, about half of that comes from public sources, so taxpayer money, and half of it from private resources. So the savings of both retail individuals and institutional investors. The good news is that we have over $250 U.S. dollars available in the global financial system. So among venture capital, private equity, and most importantly, the two biggest pools of capital being the asset management sector and bank lending and credit sector. So over a hundred trillion U.S. dollars, you know, sitting in bank accounts alone. And of course, banks, because of their relationship with the central banking system, they have a unique role in that they can essentially create money through the lending capacity that they're provided by being in the central banking system. So we have the capital. That's not our problem. We have, we definitely have it in the system. Our problems are more about how do we shift the capital from where it is today, which is often and abundantly in carbon heavy industries and activities towards the green economy and those climate solutions that are clearly outlined by Project Drawdown, for example. Marilyn, I love your framing around how philanthropy is part of a system of inadequate taxation. And while it is still an important vehicle for impact and change, that it should be used to support efforts like climate finance. And really, you're relying on it as an accelerant to de-risk investment and try to drive more capital into climate action. 
I'm curious, aside from philanthropy, what are other capital accelerants that are needed that can really help unlock more investment? So capital accelerants would include the entire innovative system. So innovation comes from numerous parts of our society. One clear part of society is the startup tech community. And I use the word tech very broadly, not just software, but any kind of technological innovation. And so one of the things that we've backed is the climate fintech ecosystem, creating a definition around that, creating an understanding around what climate fintech is, and supporting accelerators, incubators, and funds that help this intersection between financial technology and climate solutions. That's what we might consider disruptive, and we would say disruptive for a climate good. And so that's part of the catalyst needed to move us along this trajectory towards decarbonization, towards uh, viable, healthy communities, and so on. And I would say that that's, that's important. The other part of this is kind of the entrepreneurship side. So driving change from the inside of both small and large institutions. And for us, we focus on finance. So that's mostly, of course, the, the banks, the credit unions, the asset managers, the other financial advisory intermediaries, and so on. And for that, um, you know, having champions, having leaders internally who will drive those changes is also very important. So I would say both that entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship are vital. I've seen that you've described this work as really composing of two threads, innovative finance and systemic decarbonization of capital. Will you break down those terms for us? Sure. So innovative finance is really anything we can do to prove to the market that something is viable, that the market perceives as not so. And so, for example, climate fintech, supporting an accelerator for climate fintech, for example, placing capital into the climate impact fund that is going to invest in startups whose solutions mitigate climate change at the gigaton level. We've done that with Prime Impact Fund, for example, supporting new credit unions like the Clean Energy Federal Credit Union, which is not only scaling this type of lending for themselves as an institution, as a credit union, but also teaching the other 5,000 credit unions in the United States how to do this kind of lending. And so that is really, all of that's in the innovative finance bucket. Systemic decarbonization or systemic change is about the market rules. So regulation, um, what are the rules of the game when we talk about venture capital, asset management and bank lending, and how are those rules skewed towards carbon intensive activities and how could they be shifted towards activities that actually work for people and planet. It also includes industry-led initiatives that may not be in the kind of mandatory regulatory side of things, but have enough critical mass to have a systemic impact. Great. And you focus not just on the US, but also on climate financing in Europe and in China. Why those three markets? What insights are you gaining by working across them? And also, given the role of your fund being backed by an American foundation, what's the resonance of being able to be influential in Europe and China, given the American origins? Climate change is one of those problems that is completely global in nature and that it doesn't matter where the ton of, of CO2 equivalent is emitted. We're all going to experience the impacts of that. So that's why international negotiations and things of that nature are so important for this problem. 
And I would say it's more than a problem, right? It's such a pervasive challenge. And so we have to work globally. And the two largest historical emitters, the countries or the economies that are responsible for the current problem in the atmosphere are the United States and then the European Union countries. And of course, the EU has 27 member states, and some of those countries are way more heavy emitters than others. Those are historical emissions. And if we talk about annual emissions today, China is the biggest emitter globally, annually. So these are large single markets that cannot be ignored. And we kind of track the emissions since we can't really cover everything given our budget constraints. We've focused on the on these top emitters. And then we work in conjunction with others that focus on other markets because it is all hands on deck and we do need all economies to shift towards you know, climate-friendly activities and financing. That's the rationale. And I would say climate is a, it's a language that everyone can speak. We, we have metrics like tons of CO2 equivalent. The top three greenhouse gases are, in terms of um, impact on us, are carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide. And so we can track those, and they're very much a part of global supply chains, when we look at products and even services and how we deliver those products and services. So we've been, I think, quite effective across those three markets in speaking that global language of climate change and also in speaking the local language wherever we are, right? Because there are, there's definitely a local context to finance. Banking in particular is very national. It's a, you know, nationally regulated, heavily regulated uh, activity. The things that matter most to people, right, are heavily regulated. Things like energy, water, uh, money, uh, banking, and so on. Only one out of every four dollars crosses any kind of border. And when it comes to climate investing, it's even less. So only 15 cents out of a dollar will actually cross a border. So we have to go deep and understand the local context to effectively work in different markets. And are there any insights that you're gaining by working across those markets, things that can be borrowed from one context to the other? Yes, there are things that are shareable, uh, best practices and so on. And then the things that are unique to each market. One of the things that does cross the border are the capital markets within each. So the stock exchanges. We, for example, back the creation of a Chinese climate-friendly index for the top 100 listed Chinese companies, so A-share companies in Shanghai and Shenzhen, who are in the climate solution space. And in the U.S., there's a, an equivalent led by Carbon Collective, a climate-friendly ETF that lists the top climate solutions company listed in the U.S., so the NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange. And so we've done that for the Chinese market. And now we're also looking to have that be made available for U.S. investors and EU investors. So that's the kind of thing where the, the companies aren't always the same. Of course, there is some dual listing. There are some Chinese companies that are listed in the U.S. and so on, EU companies that are listed in the U.S. But by and large, the companies that are listed in each market will be different and they will play different roles in the climate-friendly economy. But just having that kind of index available to raise the visibility, for example, of the climate solutions is something that we can do across these markets. Let's double-click for a minute on China. As you wrote earlier this year in GreenBiz, the country is both the largest renewable energy market and the largest greenhouse gas emitter. It's a great article, by the way, and we'll include a link to it in the show notes. Despite the critical importance of China's decarbonization, it's in some ways on its own path. 
where do you see an opportunity or a pressing need for U.S. and European companies and investors to collaborate more with their counterparts in China? So I think the example I was just giving is, is perfect for that in that the U.S. investment community, the EU investment community, actually globally, you know, the investment community in across the African markets, across um, all of the Americas, so not, you know, North, Central, South America, Southeast Asia, so on, can all participate in investing in, you know, Chinese climate-friendly companies because our entire planetary viability depends on China succeeding, right? We have, China has to get this right for us all to get it right. Now they have a great macro policy, what is known as 3060. So peaking uh, carbon emissions uh, equivalent by 2030 and becoming completely net zero or carbon neutral by uh, 2060. So the macro policies are there and there's a lot of detail behind that. Now is time to actually implement and execute on that vision and strategy and goal. And so that will require um, more engagement with China, more support for transitioning, especially the heavy industries, chemicals, steel, cement, fertilizer, so on. That's a key part. I would say, you know, it's generally considered to be good practice to have 40% of an investment portfolio in emerging markets. The average portfolio in the U.S. is falling short on that. I think it stands around 15% on average for both retail and institutional investors. So there's a lot of room for investing in emerging markets, um, China included. And so I think that is ripe for more engagement. Marilyn, I know that bringing a lens of equity to climate finance is really important to you and really central to the work that you're doing. So I'm curious, how do you integrate equity into your work, elevate it for others, and ensure it gets advanced through your efforts. DEIJ or JEDI, so that's Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, is a lens with, within which we pursue climate finance. It's integrated. It's not a separate thing. And make no mistake, it's there because that's where the money is. It's important because we've learned that we lose without it and we win with it. So, for example, 20% of the EU population is made up of racialized communities. And there's no way to decarbonize or mobilize enough capital if we ignore those racialized communities. In the U.S., for example, there are 47 million Black people. The Black buying power is over a trillion USD. We know that since 2000, the U.S. has lost 16 trillion U.S. dollars in GDP as a result of anti-Black discrimination by itself, let alone other forms. And so we actually need this capital Unless we have this equity lens, it's hard for us to have the capital and to address the decarbonization needed across the entire economy without having that lens. It's a numbers game as much as it is a lens for creating a more inclusive economy and one in which everyone belongs. In practice, where do you think climate justice gets challenged most often? As in many people will share the belief that as we build a new, more sustainable economy, that it should also be more equitable. But then they don't always follow through. What do you think happens? Is it competing priorities that pop up, just a rush for expedience that precludes the intentionality it takes to build more equitable systems? And what do you think are some of the most critical do's and don'ts when it comes to really executing on the aspiration for greater equity? So... I think inequity persists because it's okay and acceptable for inequity to persist. And I think it is as simple as that. We know that time is relative. We take the time we need to take to get things done that need to get done that are important. 
no matter what it is that's critical. Um, you know, if you're in an emergency room, if you're in any kind of like saving, like actually saving a life in the medical sense profession, if you are back to my original study, civil engineering, you know, building that bridge, building that critical infrastructure, flying your airplane, all of these things require intentionality. And we have a zero tolerance for mistakes, right? We have a zero tolerance for error and for not doing what we have to do, no matter how long it takes to get it right. Adding the Jedi lens, adding the justice, equity, diversity, inclusion lens is a part of the process if you want it to be. And by intentionally building it into the process, standard project management or process management or product management, then I think we can avoid the outcomes that we see today, which is consistently reliable and comparable inequities, right, across the globe and across all kinds of metrics. It is literally as simple as that, unless we start to see equity embedded in corporate policies, in uh, compensation, in specific goals, right, back to the reason why we want to have this measurement of carbon dioxide equivalent across scopes one, two, and three. So across, you know, the full supply chain of carbon emissions is because we know that once it's measured, it's going to be better managed. It's the same thing for justice, equity, diversity, inclusion. If we actually want to, it to be managed, it has to be measured. And so I think that the absence of that really tells us everything we need to know about why we aren't seeing climate justice. Thank you for that, Marilyn. You're also involved in the Bank for Good campaign. Tell us about that effort and why is it needed? So Bank for Good is something that we've backed. It's a website, platform, a collection or a coalition of organizations and banks and credit unions in the United States that really highlights climate-friendly institutions. So if you are looking for a credit union or a bank based on your needs. So it could be a business banking, it could be individual banking, it could be, I would like to have a physical branch to go into, or I don't care, it could be fully online, all, whatever your need is, you have it in this one platform online. And so it seeks to raise awareness around how banking matters. And even if you have only one US dollar in a bank account, it is being leveraged 10 or 20 times to go out and lend things it is not a neutral act. It has impact whether you are actively aware of it or not, right? So you are already an investor, whether you know it or not, um, just by having anything in a bank account or credit union account. And so it's bringing visibility to financial institutions that are climate friendly at the very minimum. They're fossil fuel free. And on the, you know, even better side, they're actively doing climate friendly lending across the real economy, either in helping uh, provide loans for geothermal uh, heat pumps, for solar energy, for electric vehicles, and so on. And now there's actually a bankforgood.eu forming. It's not live yet, but there will soon be a similar platform for the European Union. Talking about banking, we should, of course, focus on the recent collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank, at least for a moment. It not only was a central player for the entire Silicon Valley startup ecosystem, but it played an outsized role in supporting climate tech companies and also renewable energy projects. So I'm curious, what is the role that you saw it playing and the gap that its collapse has created? So Silicon Valley Bank was mostly serving the tech community broadly, independent of any particular 
sector. That included climate tech. Um, but of course, it wasn't at all exclusively focused on that. It was just broadly the startup world and the venture capital world. So pretty much the, the startups and the investors that back the startups. And if you are a startup going through an entire kind of, let's say, chain of raising capital from seed, series A, series B, et cetera, et cetera, all the way up to some kind of acquisition or becoming public, um, you know, having a financial institution to follow you on that journey and to support you in that journey was part of the value proposition. SVB also provided venture debt and they kind of pioneered that whole space, defining it as, you know, loans that enable fast growing and investor backed startups to access capital with less dilution. So meaning that the startups could raise the capital that they needed without giving away more of their equity shares. Of course, startups are called startups. It's called venture capital for a reason, meaning that this is much higher risk than what banks typically do and how banks are, let's say, philosophically oriented based on the central banking rules and the other banking regulator rules. So we have this whole alphabet soup of financial regulators in the country, which includes the FDIC for ensuring bank deposits, the NCUA for ensuring credit union deposits, the OCC for like a lot of banking rules and, you know, supervisory oversight, the Federal Reserve, of course, as the nation's bank, the nation's balance sheet, so on and so forth. There's also some rules, for example, the CFPB consumer protections. Um, In any case, it was definitely serving, let's say, a different market than your typical bank does. It did not diversify its deposit base to everyday people, the retail consumers, which we've known from history is pretty vital. Remember back to the 08-09 crisis, it was the retail bank, with, of course, help of the taxpayers, that helped bail out the investment banks, right? So it was Bank of America that bailed out Merrill Lynch. It wasn't the other way around. It was Chase that bailed out J.P. Morgan. And so it's back to us. We are the pillar foundation of the economy. And it all kind of starts and ends with us. So retail consumers are less likely to panic and move around money often and and have kind of a herd mentality around this kind of thing. And Silicon Valley banks, depositors are more of like herd creatures. Um, Venture capital community um, is known for that. And so that's part of uh, the story there. I would say for the climate-friendly loans piece, which includes community solar and some very kind of innovative parts to supporting the climate-friendly economy, I think what I've been advocating for for a while now is that we mainstream and inject climate-friendly lending across the system, not just in niches or not just in some kind of quote-unquote green bank. We need the whole banking system to be green if we're going to achieve our goals of solving climate change. We can't have this be niche-oriented. So the 5,000 credit unions and the 5,000-plus banks, they all need to be green. That means they all need to have an asset class called clean energy. They all should be providing more affordable, better interest rates for an EV versus an internal combustion engine. They all should have solar, home geothermal, energy efficiency equipment. That should all be there as an asset class. The Clean Energy Credit Union, for example, as a relatively new institution, they've been around for over three years now. They have had zero defaults. And that's a real testament to the viability of this clean energy asset class. I hope that 
depositors will diversify and banks will diversify you know, in the climate space so that we don't have just this niche. We actually have the democratization of climate-friendly lending across the board. Marilyn, the alphabet soup of acronyms that you just listed could easily be extended to include the SEC, which, as we know, has been deliberating on an anticipated rule change that would require companies to disclose their climate emissions. Perhaps that leads to some of the systemic change that you're describing. In Europe, there's an effort, which you're part of, to update disclosure rules as well. And I imagine there's hope to keeping these rules as consistent as possible between the two regions, but also to make sure that have as much positive impact on climate as they can. So tell us what you believe the short and longer term influence of the disclosure rules will be. I think the disclosure rules will help bring along the laggards, those that are not voluntarily providing the information, and thus level the playing field for those who have access to information. Not everyone can afford a Bloomberg terminal, including some NGOs and retail investors and so on. And so this is a really core to providing all market participants with the information they need to make informed decisions and help actually have a a fair and efficient market. Right now, it's completely unfair, completely inefficient when it comes to critical information around ESG, including climate data. That's what I expect mostly is actually just leveling the playing field for for this information and cost for accessing the information because now it will be mandatory to provide it. And that's, I think, um, a very important step in this journey for solving climate change and having the capital needed to do so. This has, of course, become politicized. And in the US, we've seen really a highly politicized backlash to ESG investing, that is the movement for companies to report on their environmental, social, and governance performance, and for investors to factor those into investment decisions. How will this backlash manifest with respect to the SEC rule change? Do you think there will be a longer-term battle attempting to rewrite the new disclosure rules, for instance? I think it will be too late, and I think it will just be BAU very soon. I think we're seeing a last-ditch effort at bringing transparency and leveling the playing field for the everyday person, the everyday market participant. You know, the media apparatus of hate groups in the U.S. is is quite strong to try and block very simple and basic reporting on an employer's social environmental impact and governance structure is hurtful to not just the you know people and planet, but also just to the basic functioning of the market itself. This information. It's also just needed to make good financial decisions. And we have to ask ourselves why, you know, this is only about disclosure. This requires nothing more. There's no behavioral change, no action required other than telling the market the, the risk, opportunities and impacts of the company on people and planet and the governance structure behind that. So, and in the U.S. case, we haven't seen the comprehensive ESG rules yet. It's coming bit by bit. It's coming, you know, in in chunks. Uh, So I think the SEC is now working on the human capital disclosure uh, regime. um, And they started with the climate disclosure regime and so on. Whereas the the European economic area has issued 12 cross-cutting ESG corporate standards that we're expecting to be adopted in June, but the actual you know, standards have been proposed and written by the expert group in charge of that. I think that's actually going to be a lost cause. Once it's in place, companies are used to doing it. 
Of course, there will be interests like the fossil fuel lobby that won't want to report it because it is astonishing when you actually look at the numbers. This also happened when we first had revenue, <laughs> revenue as a requirement. It sounds preposterous today, but if you think back to the 1930s and so on, it was not required for companies to tell us about the profit and loss, right? The, the three income statements as we know them today with them, you know, basic financial information, but that was not required before. We had to have a big fight to make that a requirement because those who wanted to hide something, if you have something to hide, you don't want to share it, right? And so for those that were cooking the books and didn't have good strong financials, they didn't want to have transparency around profit and loss. And now it's there, it's not going anywhere. I think that will be the same. Although, you know, who knows, perhaps they will keep trying. <laughs> Marilyn, one of the reasons why it's so exciting to talk to you is that in many ways, you're working not just to find and create new investment opportunities to create a more just and sustainable world, but actually to improve the financial system's likelihood of creating those outcomes. And so I'm curious, looking ahead over the next three to five years, what are you most excited about or hopeful for? And what are some of the most important developments that need to happen to improve finance's ability to support the climate transition? So I'm excited about leadership, the people and the increasing diversity of voices that are driving climate finance and sustainable finance and investment. I'm very hopeful about that. Financial regulation, there's been a lot of progress in recent years. The European Banking Authority, EBA, has mandated that all European or EU banks uh, measure and disclose their financed emissions. They recommended PCAF, the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials, to do that. That was not at all the case many years ago. Um, I would say there was, there was a history of the financial industry really claiming that they're just takers of the economy. They're not makers. And oh, it's really about the real economy companies. And really there was a culture of saying, it's not our problem. We just will finance whatever comes to us kind of thing. And so there's been a whole cultural shift around that, which is tied to the, the financial regulation outcomes that we see today. The Chinese Securities uh, Regulatory Commission, they're also requiring listed Chinese companies to do environmental disclosures. We do need to see more detailed information about that, but that, that in and of itself is encouraging. And I think that in terms of capital in low and middle income countries, the role of diaspora is not yet leveraged, but I am seeing a trend perhaps that it can be leveraged for climate action, which will help with you know, global climate justice when it comes to you know, those economies that have had least contributed to this crisis are bearing the brunt. And I think there's a trend and there's a role for various diasporas to support low and middle income countries in addition to, you know, the high income country regulation supporting investments as such in low and middle income countries as well. Marilyn, for listeners who now understand and believe in the importance of, of transforming the financial system to better produce climate positive outcomes, how can they help? What's the most important thing for them to do? So at the individual level, I would say there's three steps. Number one, ensure you're banking with a fossil fuel free, preferably deforestation free, sustainable bank or credit union. You can find those on bankforgood.org or on asksustainable.com. Number two is to ensure your retirement savings 
or other investments follow suit. So check out your 401k, your IRA, all of these things. Oursphere.org is one example of a mutual fund that is not only climate friendly, but it allows you to vote your shares or will vote your shares in line with climate policies. And AskSustainable.com has a comprehensive list of banking and investment products that are all climate friendly. It's great. And then the third thing I would say is find ways to stay engaged and informed. Um, There are a number of newsletters that can help you out. If you're listening to this podcast, you're already a part of that journey. But I think signing up for those automatic newsletters keeps you informed. And oftentimes there are calls for actions within them because they we don't know what will come about in the future. And so I think that's really important. I know that one of them is called Inside the Movement, ITM run by the Years Project, which is just you know one of the many climate-oriented newsletters for engaging people. Thank you, Marilyn. Thank you so much for your time, for this interesting conversation, and for all the important work that you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.